what Brooklyn sounds like. Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How are you doing today? I I give a shit. I give a shit. I'm a little disappointed that, you know, well... I mean, our government is really like uh, hard to stomach. Uh, I don't need to say any more than that. You've heard enough from people who are much more qualified. But uh, thanks for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn today. Do you know that we do all this for nothing? For nothing. Just for you. For free. So uh, now is a really important time to support the media. You know that, right? I'm looking at you. Yeah. Get up and earn some monies. Just don't sit there. Get a job so you can donate. So, like, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org and donate. So I have this lovely uh, uh, intimidate. I I already told him I was a little intimidated, intimidatingly brilliant man and talented. Okay, it's okay. This is is my counter-transference, which I'm so nervous. I have to get this out of the way right away. Uh, It's Lauren Monk. Hi, Lauren. Hi, hi, Dr. Lisa. I, I just I have a question for you. Already? Yeah. What What is my copay? <laughs> <laughs> we already told you we're not yeah, making anything been, out of this, this. Is this going to be covered by Obamacare? I, you know, I just want to make sure that uh, my session I, is taken I don't, care of. I don't think this is going to be valuable enough uh, medically to actually pay for it, to tell you the truth. But uh, <laughs> it will, you know, you'll... you're. Listen, guys, you may not, this may not cure you, but we will all learn something and be entertained. I guarantee you that. So Lauren Monk is um, a really complex person for me to to describe to you. He basically is two people. He's Lauren Monk. Lauren Monk is this artist who chronic, who makes, um, paintings that are really complex he's so complex it's complex with with it i'm tr- gonna try i'm gonna try and then i'll let him tell you so he makes paintings that are they're really beautiful they're they're funny you know they're funny right i mean yes, they're, they're funny yes. they're funny so the world is funny they're funny and they chronicle the art world in uh sort of maps in sort of a map t- what do you call that cartography way well there's cartography and there are other ones the other pieces that are more diagrammatic dealing with um the flows of art movements and things Mm -hmm. like that but first of all i would like to say uh thank you dr lisa and um radio free brooklyn for having me in here oh my it's an honor to be here no no, the the honor is mine i also told told lauren that part of my contract my uh, counter-transference is my fear that we're going to have like um, self-effacing competitions because he's really self-effacing. I'm really self-effacing and uh, it could happen. So be prepared. Okay. I'm ready. Are you? Are you you're ready for <laughs> I will, this, Lauren? I will, I will Lauren, put on my self-effaced, yes. Do okay. you want to still do this? Are you ready to yeah, go? You're, you're up for this? Let's rumble, baby. Okay. So Lauren um, and um, his his... I, I don't know how to, his paintings, uh, which are sort of easily described as charts, just for, you You have to go to my Facebook page or his laurenmonk.com and look for it's yourself. www.laurenmonk.com. Do your own research, okay? But anyway, so his his paintings cover 
um, the artists and the galleries in a fairly direct, almost literal way. But then he also does charts and graphs in a certain way of in his way that are also conceptual about art history and art movements. Does yes. that make sense? And and the philosophy of art and um, different kinds of ideas about what is art. Nobody <laughs> really knows. We think we know, but we don't know. And they're um, huge, beautiful paintings, and he's had many solo shows, and he's also had, uh, I, I have a quote from Roberta Smith here, who is the premier art critic from the New York Times and about we love, him. Yes, we love Roberta. We do. We love Roberta. Uh, I have it here. I'm not going to bother. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not looking for it right now. I'm trying to talk to Lauren. I'm trying to get my shit together and handle this. So anyway, but he's been reviewed. There's so much press about him that uh, most of the time that he spent here beforehand was trying to figure out what we could talk about that hasn't been actually discussed before. But then there's also James Calm, which is a personality that... Uh, Lauren said is a documentarian gadfly and he goes and visits galleries and he makes videos about the, the art, the artists and uh, street musicians. And that is really um, an important chronology or important reference. Uh, somebody said, somebody important said that it should, that he should get a MacArthur grant for it. Who, who said that? Was that uh Kathy Bradford. That's a big fucking deal, folks. If you don't know anything, that's a big, big <laughs> my, fucking my deal. My mother, no, <laughs> it's true. And uh, so you would, if you, the thing about the um, videos that are that are so amazing is that you don't really you can learn about art, but without in the most like fun way. So that's James. How do you get? What's the website for that? Well, you can go to YouTube and just type in uh, James Calm Report, J-A-M-E-S-K-A-L-M Report. I have two channels. And then there's also the James Calm Rough Cuts channel. So you can type in either one of those. I've got uh, something like 1,300 programs, and I've been doing this now for 14 years. And he has over, uh, he has way over 2 million views. Well, I've got, <clears throat> I'll tell you a little story about what's happening with the uh, the the cleaning out of the uh, social media, I actually had somewhere in the neighborhood of about 10 or 11 million views. And then after the last election, uh, <clears throat> the people at Google and some of the other Internet overlords were looking and saying, gee, we're afraid that somebody's been in here diddling around with the numbers. Somehow the numbers on your the view numbers are are used as a, a metrics of what's more important so they just sort of uh, erased about uh, 35 or 40% of everybody's view count. So, you know, and I always kind of... That's so upsetting. No, but I thought to myself, you know, geez, if I was a Russian hacker and my main job was trying to figure out how we could uh, distort the election and overthrow American society, you know, the first thing I'd be doing is I'd be going to the, the James Com report and be clicking on there constantly so I would drive up his view rates so I, I just accept that, that, uh, you know, they had to chop off a well, few million views. It disappoints me that the government is trying to control us, and now Google does shit like that. That's fucked up, man. Um, here's the thing. I'm going to tell um, um, Lauren, I'm going to address my viewers, and I'm my viewers, my listeners. I feel like I can see <laughs> you, folks. I'm magic. I'm going to, like, Lauren has... 
Lauren is complex. So I'm going to tell you really quickly what I'm going to give you some bold points about him. And then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to what we're what we're going to try and uncover today. Okay, so things you should know about Lauren. Lauren Monk uh, was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's a Mormon. He's not practicing now. He enlisted in the Army, uh, and um, he had a career that was, uh, let's say, a stellar career, a lucrative, where he was where he was supporting his wife and two kids for years until the late 80s. And then he, I would say, I don't want to, started a new and very uh, important to all of, all the art world people career uh, with his deep dive into covering the art world. So what I want to know is from Lauren is I want to know why he's so obsessed with art, art history, artists, that whole thing. Like what, what's driving his, it's an obsession. Um, And I also want to find out about um, Lauren was saying that his, being married and having kids has been a really uh has really well we were trying to figure out like how he went from his original career of making uh what were what kind of paintings were you making new well i was actually um one of the two or three or four people that uh were kind of writing on part of neo-expressionism but it actually was known as kitsch art and uh there were a few other people that kind of got some kind of recognition for doing that. And so you were having shows like all, all over. You had a well, deal. I was, I, I, I was working with a, a lady named Gabrielle Briars. She was a paramour of Leo Castelli. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was getting some shows in Europe, in Paris. Uh, Elizabeth Krieff was uh, showing the work. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. a uh, couple of dealers that were showing the work in Germany. I had some people in South America. So, and you were supporting your family with the, with, well, the family from painting. The family didn't really come along until 1987 was my first, the birth of my first son. And then, uh, 1990 was the second son. And, uh, well, that was, <laughs> that, anyway, that became a full-time job. Here's the thing, folks. The kids We've got a lot to cover helping. here. We've yes. got a lot to cover here. So uh, I just wanted to give you a rundown of where we're going with this. Okay? We're on it. Okay. So, Lauren, you grew up in Salt Lake City. That's correct. Did you, were there any, was there any artistic leanings in your family, or did you discover that on your own? Or No, I basically discovered it on my own. Uh <clears throat> There were not a lot of artistic things, although I have to say that uh, uh, what initially happened was uh, when I was about seven years old, uh, my mom went in for a PTA meeting, and I think uh, one of the teachers looked at her and said, I think your kid has got some kind of of talent <laughs> as an artist. And my mom was like, oh, gee. So I, for my seventh birthday, she brought home a uh, paint-by-number set. <laughs> and uh, it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> See, I told you he was that self-effacing. So, <laughs> he makes such great, big, huge, masterful paintings, and this is what he says, folks. Well, but I, you know, so now I look back on it, and I've actually been painting for 60 years now at this point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so um, 
Okay. And you're also one of three boys. So that was, right? That's the, yes. the middle child. That's right. So that must have been a guy-heavy uh, kind of household, right? Well, I guess so. You know, my mom and my father divorced when I was very young. So it was basically we were raised by a single mom, mm-hmm. a wonderful person. She was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically it was just the brothers raising each other. And was your father part of that or did he move away? Not really. He... Uh, he lived in another city about uh, 40 miles north of us, so, you know, we'd see him occasionally, but I feel like I never really had a chance to get to know him as, as much as I would have liked to. I mean, he was a, a person that was out there, but I, I wish I would have known him better. That must have been really unusual in those days, because um, I know we're, we're peers we're in some ways, you know, we're not, you know, we're not in our 20s. And so then I know in my day that was very unusual to have divorced families, right? Well, I, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Well, I, did you know anybody else or was it, un, did it feel unusual? No, I, I didn't really pay attention to it that much. It was just, uh, <laughs> we were running around, uh, having fun, playing baseball, running through the fields, barefoot, uh, you know, in a certain way I was thinking it was kind of like, uh, Tom Sawyer or something, you know? Oh, Very so you just had, so beautiful. your mom, your mom fucking did an amazing job is really what it's sounding I, like. Yes, she did. She, she did. really did, right? Absolutely. Because I'm here in happy childhood. Well, <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, your brothers, you guys are all, were, it must have been fun. It sounds like you guys got along well. It was a lot of fun and, uh, and I'm still close to my brothers and uh, they're a, they're both living out west, and uh, I go out and see them when I can. Nice. So um, you enlisted in the Army. You said that was That's a correct. big turning point in your life, sort well, of, or so, in your art career. We're talking about your art career, I guess. So Yeah. Um, what happened there? We're, we're talking about the early 70s, so Vietnam is going crazy, and... Uh, Everybody's protesting, and it's terrible. And my older brother was was drafted and uh, was considering leaving and going to Canada. And uh, eventually, he he turned it around and decided that he would join the the army because if you joined, you could pick your your military occupation. And mm-hmm. he decided to tr- to uh, train to be a radiologist. And uh, they ended up sending him to Germany. My younger brother was was also drafted. He ended up going in the Marine Corps, and he was in Japan for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were actually very lucky because no one went to Vietnam. Did you have a lot of friends that went to Vietnam or friends that were drafted? Yeah, no, I did. And uh, That must have been really hard. Well, you know, it's like looking back now, uh, you had a couple of friends and people that you went to high school with and they never came back, you know, and uh, time time goes by and uh, you wonder what would have happened if that whole thing didn't happen or they had somehow gone somewhere else. Wow. 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 So Germany sounds like you, what was, I mean, I was getting the feeling that Germany was a good thing in, in a lot of ways. So Well, it, it was, uh, and as I was saying, in a lot of ways, that's where I got my initial art education. I was able to uh, go on leaves to Paris so I could visit the Louvre. I could go to Munich, go to the Alta Pinacothek. I visited Berlin, mm-hmm. although you had to have a special because you're in the military, you had to have a special pass to get in there because that was the Berlin Wall was still up. Wow. And uh, I remember one time I went on a Berlin orientation tour where you actually go in on a train 
And because it was a mil- special military train, they bring you, it's like midnight or one o'clock in the morning, they bring you up there and they close all the curtains and everything and you have to travel and they, you're going like 15 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour for, I guess it was 90 miles inside East Germany. And, uh, you know, you'd sort of sneak over and peek out the window shades and look around and it was very dark and, and then you come into the East or in the, into the Berlin station and, uh, it was such a, uh, kind of a, an, an example of what the shining, the shining, uh, workers paradise was all about because it was, it was <laughs> pretty strange. But then West Berlin was like its own little Island. And strange. Did it seem like desolate and sad or like no, were no, people, uh, West, were people like West you, Berlin was boogie town. And, uh, there were a lot of, oh. uh, really great art things going on. Mm-hmm. Part of it was because the, the West German government was spending a lot of money to pump up the, the cultural institutions there. So they were really going out of the way. Huh. If you were, um, a student or if you were going to be drafted or something, they would sort of say, you don't have to do that if you go and live in West Berlin because they're trying to get as many people into West right. Berlin as they could. So there were a lot of, you know, yeah. youngsters, rock and rollers, punk rockers, all these people going to West Berlin. It was, so were it was you, a gas. were you really like, um, like what was it like having access to all that art? Was that something that you hadn't had in Salt Lake City or did that like no, that's light exactly a fire? Right. No, I, what was that like? It, it did light a fire because I, and this was maybe could be, you were talking about my obsession with, art in the art community and all that stuff. This was the first opportunity that I had to see a real art community, a real group of young artists and uh, people that were talking about it, uh, arguing about it, having major exhibitions. Uh, it was, it was fantastic. And you were like, I want some of that. Yes. Did you, you went to under, you went to the university of Maryland in Germany, but you were, did well, you study art there? No, basically, this was just a little, uh, I was studying German language mostly. <laughs> I mean, did you think you were going to be like a professional artist or what were you thinking? I didn't even know what being a professional artist was. I had no idea. But there were you... no a professional artists in Idaho. <laughs> so you didn't know any. No. What did you think you were going to do? Did you have a plan? Well, not really. Uh... <laughs> what were you good at? I was good at art. I was good at drawing. But... I was good at painting. Mm-hmm. I was... You know, when I was in high school, they thought I was going to be an auto mechanic. So I, ah. I actually had a three-hour course, which was like a professional training course. So that was also the period when, uh, you know, the Beach Boys were singing about Little Deuce Coops and uh, everybody had their hot mm-hmm. rod dreams and uh, or they were building uh, chopper motorcycles and things like that. So that was always kind of a one thing that they kind of planned for me. And I guess I disappointed a lot of people when I, I didn't become an auto mechanic. So you were... Th- Thinking, so I could see that. So that's what you probably were thinking your goal was. I'll, I'll make a living as an auto mechanic. Well, I maybe, maybe, maybe no, could have been an, you'd be good at it. I think, I think you would have been really good at it. You're good at like making things and you would appreciate the cars like a really high end auto mechanic. Those people make a lot of, don't, don't write that off no, yet. You don't know, write that I'm off. I'm not, but if you, if you wanted to look at say the California, uh, Finnish fetish people, those people, a lot of them came out of the hot rod uh, ideal and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, those would yeah. be your people for sure. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and then we have, uh, we moved to New York, the art students. So you moved to New York right after Germany? Well, I actually went back to Idaho for a couple of years and was studying art at Idaho State University. 
And then I um How my, did we get from how did we get from uh Salt Lake City, Utah to Idaho? Well, my mom remarried and uh she married a gentleman that had six children already, so altogether we had nine kids in the family. That didn't last very long, about two years. Uh-huh. Uh that, that's how you got to Idaho. Yeah, that marriage fell apart. Uh but we stayed, we lived in Pocatello. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Idaho State University, started studying art there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I was went in the army, came back to Pocatello, which is where my mom was. Mm-hmm. Uh, lived there for a couple more years. Then my dad, who was living in Ogden, Utah, passed away. Mm-hmm. I, I inherited a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I decided uh, I had to get the hell out of out of Idaho, or I knew I would probably die there. Do you think you would? But you wouldn't have done that if you hadn't been to Germany a bit. That's true. And That's I, when true. I when I got out of the army, I did come through New York and spend about a week and a half hanging mm-hmm. out in Manhattan and visiting the museums and some of the mm-hmm. galleries mm-hmm. on 57th Street. Mm-hmm. So there you are in New York. Did you feel at home? Were you like, yeah? No, 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 no. This was a, <laughs> this was a total uh, cultural shock. What was it like? Um, you know, when I was living in Pocatello and I would tell people I'm going to New York, people look at me and just go, why Why would you want to leave and go to <laughs> Gomorrah? You know, in this the is 70s. Like, this, is, this is like, you know, the worst, this is like... <laughs> the worst, most sinful city in the world. Why would you go there? And I said, because of art. Huh. So, but uh, it was good. I got, a, I was lucky. I got a very cheap apartment about two blocks away from the Art Students League. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a whole adventure unto itself. I was there for a couple of years. Uh, that's where I met Kate, my mm-hmm. wonderful wife. Did you wife. date? I mean, what was it like with chicks when you first got to New York? Yes, I did date. You did? Wasn't, did. It wasn't, it wasn't like... You were like some like guy from like Podunk nowhere, and well, I was, but uh, girls like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you like girls, and you're yes, charming. Yes, I, I love girls. I think women, well, they're uh, the, they're the center of the world. I bet women really responded to you because you're such a um, what's the word I want to say? You know, you're a creative guy, but you have a s- slight veneer of wholesomeness. <laughs> well, I always like the term wholesome. And uh, and I I think artsy girls like that, you know, like he's a nice guy. He's like a little bit of he's a creative guy, you know, maybe a little artsy, but he's still like solid. Right. Yes. I have I have good family values. Good family values. Yes. So you met. How did you meet your wife? Well, we had we had a class together. We studied with a guy named Knox Martin, who I still love. And uh, I think this guy is still running around (laughs) making paintings. He's like 85 or something. But uh, we met in his class, and uh, we started dating and spending so time together. So she was an artist. She she was an artist, and uh, we uh, ended up moving to a loft in Brooklyn mm-hmm. back wow. in the early 80s. Wow. Was it desolate? What part? Yes. Well, we were in the northern tip of Red Hook, and it was desolate. It was dangerous. Uh, maybe... We were actually in a group of lofts, and so we were not the first pioneers, but we were maybe the second uh, second wave. So was it, was it really awesome with like all these like radical art people all living in these lofts? Is it like that? Was it romantic? It was like that. It was incredibly romantic. Uh, we would have these little uh, Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving's coming up. We'd have Thanksgiving parties, but we didn't have gas, so they were cooking these turkeys on wood-burning stoves and all kinds of things wow, like that. Wow, uh, real deal. Yeah, and uh, cars were burning on the streets. You know, people would go on steel cars, they would take out the airbags, whatever parts they wanted, and then they would burn the car on the corner. And God, look at all that fun like we that. missed, you folks. Yeah. We missed we missed those days. Um, so how did, 
how did so you're you were both like two artists making art in a cold water flat cold water loft yes like a cliche almost yes it was (laughs) (laughs) we wish we would have been had a cliche the cliche would have kept us warm we could have wrapped it around us but we didn't even have a cliche at the time uh and my wife was working for um forbes and i was working what was she doing she was actually working for the curator there she was the assistant curator at the forbes Forbes collection Collection. wow and i was working at the utrecht the art supply store about two blocks away so we'd go in in the subway in the morning on fourth avenue one 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 fourth avenue so we must have hung we must have seen each other because i probably and i lived on you know it's starting to come back to me a little bit i lived at one one two east 11th street like right at the corner of 11th and fourth and i was always in the art store i actually had a big crush on one of the art 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 guys art guys do you remember his name um i i can picture him he invited me to his family's uh picnic and then that that was then try to get sex and then I realized, oh, no. he would, well, oh, but no. then I realized, oh, I let him know I like him and he thought he could get sex. And then I would avoid going in the store after that incident. Is so, that when you stop being a painter or? <laughs> no, no, he didn't. He didn't put me off of that, but or whatever. He didn't change the direction. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. If you would have told but me, he was I would have really cute. He was so hot. Oh, he had an orangey, hot... reddish, curly hair. All right, there are okay, a, lot, anyway. a lot of interesting, Sorry, interesting I went attractive down. young people. <laughs> there were. So you worked there, yeah. So anyway, back to your wife. <laughs> I can't So, uh, um, okay, so you two are living in a cold water flat. And so how did, how did kids, like, what the fuck were you thinking? Why did you have children? You had it made. How, how could you bring children into that environment? <clears throat> well, um, you were talking about my early career and... Um, one of the things was that I we actually thought that there was a certain amount of money that was coming in, so we thought that there was, you know, some kind of at least a, a foundation that we could build on. Also, <clears throat> we both wanted to have kids. I, I probably was a little more uh, convincing. My wife was thinking maybe she would go to grad school or other things, but um, we You went, were the driving force there? Well, you know, it was a, Good it was for a, you. It was a partnership. It was a partnership. Well, you know, I'm gl- and that, that's really always, refreshing to hear that because in those days you always think the stereotype is the chicks behind all that. And I'm glad to hear that. It's good, well, good to hear. If you don't have, you don't have the woman, you're just oh, passing your time. No, we were very lucky. Uh, she's a, you know, a wonderful, maybe one of the greatest blessings of my life between her and the kids. I, you know, I would be nothing. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. And, uh, uh, you're talking about that it was it was so risky or this or that, and at the time it it I mean, of course we took you know chances, but it didn't seem like it was that strange. And uh, looking back on it, uh, it was a wonderful, beautiful, golden era. So when you when you had a family, it was sort of like it just felt it it wasn't like a big. It was like okay, we're gonna just do this and make it work. Well, you know, um, you were asking me about uh, one of, you know, why I was obsessed with history and things like that. And uh, even in my short life, say, just looking at the New York art how, world, how old were you when you had your first 30s, 20s? I was in my mid-30s. Okay. And um, just seeing how things had gone. So you, I, I came into town 
just as Soho was starting to peak and then the East Village was starting to take off, I was very lucky because Utrecht was in the East Village, so I'd take off on my lunch hour and sort of walk down mm. East 10th Street and yeah. catch, visit all of the uh, early galleries and things like that. Uh, that's when my career started to take off. We started to sell some paintings. and uh, But the other, the tragic side to that is also that was about the time that the AIDS epidemic started to mm. manifest itself. And as the as the decade went on, we started to have friends that started to get sick. Mm. And, um, you know, again, looking back on this from history, you kind of wanted to protect yourself. And so, you know, you have you have a career, you have an art world, but you're starting to see. And also there was the financial crisis, you know, the, mm -hmm. the stock market yes. crash in 87. I, and I so. Know. By 88, 89, a lot of the galleries had closed. Uh, a lot of people that had been superstars mm -hmm. were that was working, it. you know, waiting tables and driving cabs and things like that. Hi, Julian Schnabel. <clears throat> and um, also the, the AIDS epidemic was taking off. So in a certain way, um, going and uh, living in Brooklyn and cocooning was not such a bad thing. About the same time, we had actually made some connections with some people in Europe that were uh, dealing me and, and w I would have a show occasionally, but they were doing a lot of dealing privately. So that's kind of what kept us afloat, but I didn't feel that it was bad. We were kind of just out in Brooklyn, um, raising babies, uh, fixing up the loft and that but, was all good. But you weren't like, you weren't conflicted about like, I mean, it doesn't sound like you were conflicted really at all, but you, you, you was able, you were able to fit that all in your lifestyle. Well, part of it was that I just, kind of dropped out of the the new york art scene for a, about 10 years mm -hmm. because and, of your kids well partially it was because of the kids partially it was because uh, you know our little community was being decimated oh part really? of it part of it was because the stock market crashed and a lot of the high-flying money that people have been throwing at anything mm -hmm. went away mm -hmm. and um so we just kind of withdrew and uh and lived in our loft and we would go to shows occasionally, but it wasn't, you know, if you're going to be a professional artist, uh, you have to spend probably about half of your time just out schmoozing and uh, mm. visiting people, going to shows, mm. going to parties, hanging out with people, mm -hmm. patting people on the back, going to bars, mm -hmm. smiling, doing those kinds of things. And uh, if you don't do those things, your career goes away. And in New York, it goes away real fast. If you're not in everybody's faces, people's memories mm -hmm. are about five seconds so how did you how did you feel about that as your how i didn't what? i i decided that uh I, I tell you what you look in the faces of those little kids and you look in the face of your lovely wife and you just <laughs> you just didn't what even. would i what could i possibly miss i've got the the world is right here so you were so happy at home you didn't even think about it well those things are always you know they're always hanging over you I mean, because you have to think about money and uh paying the rent and uh and whether or not this what you thought was a career was ever going to turn into anything but, more than a pipe dream. But did you have FOMO? That's what I want to know. FOMO? I would have had FOMO. Do What's you know FOMO? FOMO? Oh my god. Lauren, what? I thought you were with it. I know, you know, we're I know we're old people, but I thought you were with it. FOMO, fear of fear of missing out. It's a hashtag. No, I never. Oh, wow. Well, See, aren't you glad you came on the show? Yeah. So anyway, um, so like, cause I'm going mean, to start I'm, FOMOing right away. <laughs> FOMOing here. So I'm like projecting onto you, but I'm like, I'm like, 
you have this great art career. And then, I mean, I'm not family oriented at all, but so that's why I'm projecting my own thing. But so I'd be like, oh my God, what happened? People were buying my work. They know my names, all this, look, it's all going on without me. Help. Wait, wait, wait. Did you feel any of that? Well, I guess I did to a certain extent, but on the other hand, I also uh, had a kind of a cynical view, maybe even a bitter view of a lot of what was going on. And uh, having lived through the East Village scene and seen a lot of, well, I guess what I would say, uh, posers, phonies, people who had never studied art, didn't know anything about art, uh, but they sort of popped up in the East Village and said, oh, gee, look at all the attention these people are getting. I'm going to be a painter. <laughs> and uh, so the next day they walk into the mud club or something and go, Hey, I'm a painter. And somebody go, I, gee, I'll give you a show. And they, you know, and the next thing you know, they're on the cover of art form and they've been painting for two days. <laughs> and you're sort of thinking to yourself, what, well, gee, why did I spend 20 years studying art and anatomy and, and sitting in museums and studying, you know, Rembrandt and Van Gogh and, and looking at Jackson Pollock and reading all this stuff. And, and somebody, who happens to have the right friends can just decide to be an artist. So let me ask you a question out of all the people, since you, since you know that you know the history and what's come out of the history from that. So, well, so the people who have um, say Riz have stuck, stuck out over time. Are those mostly, do you see any of those, those, you know, phonies or whatever you call them? Posers, posers, have posers actually been able to infiltrate the art history of the East Village? You don't need to name names. I would say yes. A lot or just uh, a not few? A, well, you know, it's a strange situation because in certain ways I appreciate them more now. And, you know, so there are people that I thought, the, and they were, they were just popped up and decided I'm going to be an artist. Uh, and they started playing the game and things started happening. They started to ride the wave and looking back on it from 30 some odd years, I have to kind of congratulate them because they had the chutzpah. And in certain ways, I think that uh, being a successful artist, you kind of have to have a certain amount of, uh, of, of chutzpah of just of like going and saying, yeah, this is, I am an artist and, <laughs> and you can like it or don't like it or think I'm phony or not phony. And then it's a question of the work. Although in, in many ways, and this goes also back to what, you know, my, ideas about the diagramming in the communities, the work in a lot of ways is the least important part of it. Um, the, the relationships probably are the most important part. Mm, interesting folks. Interesting. So, you know what? I have to remind people that they're listening to Dr. Lisa gives a shit right now, Lauren. On Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you for helping me out. Isn't this Thank the greatest you. radio station in the world? You know, you uh, people don't realize it, but but Dr. Lisa has taken a lot of extra time and stuff. She's actually made a recreation of Sigmund Freud's <laughs> office in Vienna in 1922. And, you know, I'm, I'm laying here, I'm reclining on this beautiful... Uh, tufted leather couch and uh she's even got all of all of the uh little uh african fetishes that she, that uh, sigmund had and she's she's fingering one now and what kind of a cigar is that, well, that you're well, chomping it's, on it's that? working for you it's <laughs> working for you it's working for us we got it we got to work with these people's mom we're painting pictures for these people i know i know you are and uh 
I, I, you know what? I want to remind people, though, I got to tell them. By the, by the way, you're listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit, which is on every Thursday, 2 to 3. You can go to the archives on Potomatic and look at all the old episodes and all that shit. But mostly, um, what you should really do is go and watch the James Calm Report, because then <laughs> you will realize how much fun, how interesting art can really be and have it, like, put handed have it digested and handed to you like a candy bar. Well, I wouldn't go. Well, that, no, okay, that no, not a candy bar, but maybe a really good meal. Maybe well, not a candy bar, but it's like you do you, you do all the work for everybody, Lauren. No, but I, it's true. I like to look at it like um, going to an opening and hanging out with your friend that's had a beer or two, you know, and watching. Yeah, through. yeah, that is that is really good. That is really good. You get an inside view because Lauren is an insider, and then you get to be an insider. People know Lauren. They want Lauren to cover their show. It's an honor. And so uh, you can, you you know, instead of just being some jerk off the street, walk, you know, stumbling into a gallery, let Lauren show you around, basically, without having to leave your home. Also, uh, I, I look at a lot of this stuff as a painter. So if you're interested in painting or what painting does or what it says or what it's about, yeah, I'm, I'm the true. guy to be with. Yeah, Lauren's like the biggest nerd. That's what another <laughs> controvert. That was another um, counter transference because Lauren is so knowledgeable about painting and paint and painters and artists and all this shit. Like if we got if we were actually talking about art or art history, you would I would oh you would you would be I don't know if you'd be disappointed, but. You, I would be exposed for my ignorance, for sure. But you know what the most important thing right now is, folks? I want you to come see um, Pop Rocks Fest, put on by one of our great hosts, Evan Baber. Where is it? And it's at Pine Box, and it's oh. on Monday, November 12th. Just around the corner. It's free, too, at 9.30 to midnight. Just free. And it's going to be... Uh, Live performances by uh, Peter Wise and the Cord, Cord uh, something I can't, Cordius? I don't know. Anyway, you know what? Our shows are great and all, all the hosts from Radio Free Brooklyn come and it's free and Pine Box is awesome. So come by Monday, November 12th. And uh, so Lauren, what 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 was that transition? I wanted to get to the transition between, uh, you know, all the you with all the phonies then you had the kids and you loved having the kids yes you love what was that like Still love it well <laughs> what, what, what was that like being at home with the family well i, I have to say I mean, that i was a, still you know, i was still doing spending a lot of time working in the studio trying to get stuff made that we would then ship to europe my wife was spending much more time with the kids but uh you know they they start to grow up and then they start playing soccer and then you become soccer parents Mm-hmm. And then you're driving up and down the East Coast, going to soccer tournaments and things like that. And and in a lot of ways, I I don't regret the fact that I kind of took ten years out of my art career to do that because uh, <clears throat> you know life is short and uh, just you only, like, you only get a chance to do something like that once. And boy, if you don't enjoy it, you you, you probably you'll feel like you missed something for the rest you, of your life. You can't see Lauren's face right now, but I'm going to tell you guys that this is like the most satisfying. Uh, experience that somebody, I mean, I can't relate, but I, Lauren, like, this is like, creates like the most meaningful uh, thing in his life uh, easily. If you could see his face, well. it's really, really, 
He likes his, Thanks. He Thanks. likes his family a lot. So anyway, uh, they are on their own now. Pretty much. <laughs> you're, you're, you, you, you had. So anyway, so, okay, there, there okay. they are. Okay, we got past the kids. So you and. Um, Coming into the late 90s. Yes. So what happened? How did you. The kids are growing up and taking off on their own a little bit. Okay, so. I'm still working and trying to get things going. But at this point, as I said, I kind of dropped out of the art world. And my wife, Kate, looked at me at some point in the late 90s and said, uh, you know, you don't exist in New York. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, you're right. And she said, you better figure out some way to exist or you're just going to disappear. And at that point, because our whole, you know, most of our community that we'd kind of grown up with in the East Village and, and some of the people in Soho, they had disappeared. They just, they just vanished. So she said, you better, you better work on this or it's, you know, it's over. So is that from a fine, f- partly a financial, was that yes, a financial, a financial was, that thing, a, but, was that a money thing or? Well, partially, but also because she, you know, she was an artist. She knew that, uh, you know, if you didn't have a career that you would be forgotten and and that there were certain things that you had to do, you had and certain people that you had to be in touch with and certain magazines, you know, there's a whole network she, of the consecrators that she, you have to be involved with. She probably thought that um, you really needed to paint is probably a lot of it too. Well, that was, as I said, uh, in a lot of ways, and this is maybe even more more relevant today, uh, the work is not the most important thing. The most important thing is your relationships. Uh, everybody's doing interesting work. Everybody's, you know, trained everybody. And if you're not trained, you can certainly hire, um, (laughs) well-trained people to make the art for you. And, um, you know, we're talking about the phonies or not the phonies. So there's a lot of stuff that is being passed off that, you know, it ain't that good. But if you have a relationship with people, so if you have friends, and people that are dealers, critics, curators, publishers, um, collectors, uh, educators, if you have that network of relationships, that will make up for the bad product in a lot of ways, a lot oh, of times. Absolutely. But, you know, I'm talking about personal satisfaction. I think there's a lot of painters that would argue and say, uh, I don't care about the relationships. I want to be in my studio. Yeah, and, and I'd those, be happy just doing I, that. I, I've heard that hundreds of times, and I always look at them and say, yeah, that's absolutely true, and I know 10 other people, and when they passed away, people backed up the dumpster. They <laughs> took their career. They, they took this person's oeuvre, their life's work, threw it in the dumpster, and that was it. So and I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen on many occasions. I'm sure. So if you're not out there making those connections and, and establishing some kind of a career and and kind of uh, staking your claim in the field of uh, cultural production, if you haven't staked it, it's going to disappear. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you by saying that I think that there are some people that don't think, I think that you you care about that because you do, which is part of what we're trying to figure out. And also um, you've seen it happen and you have a sense of history. I think it's deeply ingrained in you. And that I think is partly why you don't want to have your work thrown away. No one really wants their work thrown away, but some people don't think about it. There's a lot of people who we, we know this. There's so I'm saying like there are people out there. This is about, this is about you, Lauren. This is about you. Okay. (laughs) So I'm saying it's interesting. That's all. It's interesting that, um, you are 
you are part of art history, but you also have an interest in being part of art history. Well, I think this is one of the ways that you kind of stake your claim. Um, there are several different, like I was talking about, lenses or or categories in which you can kind of establish a a position in culture. One of them is historically. Uh, one of them is uh, in the market. Um, one of them is culturally. Uh, you can be somebody that's influential, maybe because right. you write books or right. various right. kinds of things. A right. lot of a lot of my ideas have been that I've been looking at lately have come out of a, a French sociologist named uh, Pierre Bourdieu, who I think is a genius. Um, See, just watch the videos. You don't have to read those books. Lauren is reading those <laughs> no, books no, you for read, you. You should read the books because he's the guy that came up with the ideas of cultural capital. Oh, really? Yeah, he came oh, up with the idea of cultural capital, and he also came up with the, the idea of the, the field of cultural production. Okay, Lauren, we have 15 minutes, and I want to find out more. All so right, anyway, it. no. Um, so what about, okay, so ha- now you started doing James Calm in 2006. Yes. So no, we- no, no. I um as my I was saying so it's in the late nineties. My wife is looking at me and she's saying you've got to do something to get back into the art world. You don't exist. You're invisible. Mm-hmm. You've become invisible. You faded away. What are you going to do? So at that point, I I was looking around and thinking, oh my god, you know, why was it that I never really uh, was received, critically received, or um, institutional re- institutionally received? Mm-hmm. And a big part of that was because I never really um, had the relationships with the the critics. And the curators, and um, because I, you know, I think a lot of the connections that people uh, live on, especially here in New York, come out of things because they went to schools at places like right. Yale, Columbia, right. uh, Harvard, uh, Princeton. If you were part of that, you have a, a network. Basically, that's why people are paying a couple hundred right. thousand dollars. You get to buy a little network of people that then you grow Columbia. up with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where's your alma mater? <laughs> Syracuse. Okay, that's, but I was that's an close. art director. I that's didn't. Close. I wasn't. Okay. Uh, I never set out to do this. Anyway, trip. so I had none of that. So I had to think to myself, how am I going to try to crack that field? And uh, I came up with the idea that, and I had a friend that had started writing for a little magazine called New York Arts. And uh, so then I approached the the editor of New York Arts, and I said, "Gee, could I start doing some writing?" And he said, "Okay, look, we want you to write little two or three line blurbs for our." for our uh, listing. So they would have 200 mm-hmm. galleries listed mm-hmm. and then maybe 20 of those would have a little blurb of, you know, this is someone doing uh, photographs of Israel or something. And uh, so you, mm-hmm. but you'd have to go to say 10 or 15 shows, make little notes and then go and write mm-hmm. them. So I did that for about six months. Then the guy said, why don't you do something that's 300 words? So I did 300 words. Did you enjoy writing? I did enjoy did writing. Did you find that a talent? I mean, you are talented. I'm, at I'm, it. I'm a bad writer. I had to work. I'm still working at it. I'm a bad writer. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a, vis- a visual person, but it forced me to also um, spend a lot of time studying art criticism and other people. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I had to go back and start mm-hmm. reading Clement Greenberg, mm-hmm. Harold Rosenberg, mm-hmm. all the Bergs. Mm-hmm. And then I started studying um, more classical um philosophy of aesthetics and things like that but it was important and also i think it's good uh to try to write because it makes you clarify your ideas about art yeah and anyway at some point the guy just said to me look write something that's 800 words and that's like a real review so i did that And at that point he just said 
write as much as you want. And within a period of about two months, I ended up writing as much as 10,000 words a month, which is a lot. I mean, when they're actually publishing 10,000 words, you're probably writing 50,000 words and you have to throw out about 40,000 of them to get down to the 10 or 5,000 words that you publish. Anyway, so I was doing that, but I decided that I didn't want to be writing as Lauren Monk because the New York art scene is very bias and very, uh, what can I say, elitist. And if they think that you're a painter that didn't make it, that's why you're writing. So I came up with uh, James Calm. James is my middle name. K-A is for my wife's name, and L-M is Lauren Monk. So we, I put that together Aww. and came up with a K-A-L-M. So that's, that's my name, my nom de guerre. And I, I wrote under that as a pseudonym for 10 years. Nobody knew that I was writing about that. And so from about 1997, 98 until 2006 or seven, I was writing under a pseudonym. And you were writing for the Brooklyn Rail as well? I was writing for the Which Brooklyn is Rail. Which like, if you don't uh, know, that's a major, uh, yeah, I, an important uh, art publication. I started writing for the Brooklyn Rail, I believe, in 2000 or 2001. So that was, that's like top of the line, folks. That's well, it wasn't saying. top of the line then. It was just getting off the ground. And that, that was another beautiful experience was um, having a chance to kind of be part of the, the Brooklyn oh, Rail family yeah. from the beginning. You know, and let me put out my, my props to Fong Bui. Uh, I love this guy and uh, the whole family there. And it was great to see this kind of start out from a very uh, ragtag group of kids until it's come up to where now it's probably one of the most prestigious Absolutely. art publications Absolutely. in New York City and maybe in, in the world. It's, it's very fantastic. serious. I mean, it's it's, it's like... gotten more serious. It wasn't. It didn't used to be that serious. It's gotten a little too serious hmm. these days. But well... That, but there's nothing like it. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's That's legitimate true. work. That's it's true. legitimate writing, legitimate art, legitimate, you know, legitimate everything. It's I, legitimate. Yeah, I was I was very lucky because um, at some point they brought in uh, John Yao and another guy, uh, Thomas Michelli. And uh, they tapped me because of my expertise. They tapped me to write a, an article every month called The Brooklyn Dispatches. And so... I had been concentrating mostly on Brooklyn before that, and I decided when I started writing art criticism that I did want to kind of look at more of the marginal places. And that's about the same time that Williamsburg started to take off, so I basically concentrated all my efforts on Brooklyn. And at that point, uh, I guess this was 2004, 2005, I just was writing the book in Dispatches, which was great. And one of the things that I'm kind of sad about the Brooklyn Rail is that they very rarely cover Brooklyn stuff anymore, (laughs) you know? yeah so common so i mean they're not alone in that so what about um those relationships that you were trying to uh yes well it was it was good because one of the things is that uh as an art critic uh the gallerist will take you in as a different type of person sure and they will bring you into the back and they will share confidences with you that they would never first of all if you're an artist and you walk in with your little portfolio your your book of slides or whatever they just like look at you and go uh uh you know m- m- go next door well, go somewhere anywhere but here but where it's like oh no i can write a review i'll write it like an 800 word review yeah. that will appear in something that's got 10,000 viewers or 10,000 subscribers suddenly it's like oh come on in the back room oh you want a drink yeah sit down well this is what we're gonna do mm-hmm. this is da, da, da. Mm-hmm. you should do can, we have you eight like to- minutes and i want to get to the video part yes. sorry Okay, we'll talk um, very fast. <laughs> okay, so how did you wind up getting to the video part? How okay. did you? How this did is, you? This is why I'm so lucky, and and uh, 
privileged to have intelligent and, and inquisitive children. Uh, so, okay, so I'm writing for the Brooklyn Rail, and uh, one of the things I did was I would run around and I would take pictures, and at some point I upgraded to a Canon Elf camera. One day I'm coming home, and uh, I was looking at my, I was downloading my photos, and I looked, there was a new icon on there, I popped on it, and a little video popped up, and it was like, you know, the camera dangling as I'm pedaling across the Brooklyn Bridge, and I looked at it and said, that's funny, gee, what, I could do something with that. Uh, a week or two goes by, uh, Irving Sandler had written an article that appeared in the Book and Rail talking about how <laughs> art criticism had fallen apart and that the, the dealers in the, the, um, the market was basically okay. taking over. And so I put those two things, and he was saying, there's got to be new voices, there's got to be new ways of reaching out. I put those two things together. My kids came ah. up to me and said, oh, hey, there's this thing called YouTube on, on, ah. on the internet, you know, and so I'm, I'm looking at, I got a little camera that'll take video. I, Irving Sand was calling for new voices and there's this thing called YouTube and I'm thinking about it and I said, gee, I could somehow put this together and make some kind of art thing about it. So I started doing little reports, basically taught myself how to, and it was my kids basically taught me how to do it, started me on this. And uh, so that was 2006. I started doing videos and I basically had to learn how to do all this. I had a very, very primitive um, editing program. The camera was very bad and they're all still online. You can go look at them, mm -hmm. see how bad they are. Um, but that started out. And then, as I said, I just had to keep working and developing the technique and getting better cameras and things like that. But, but you enjoyed it. What did, what did, how did you feel doing it? Like, what, what was different or like, what, well, what are you drawn to? Okay. So, uh, I was actually lucky as, as you were saying that I started writing the art criticism and that made me start to think about art in a different way. And also it made me, um, articulate my ideas about specific kinds of things. It could be the, the social commentary that somebody might be doing, or it could be technical things. Um, so I, I just felt that uh, taking someone in, you know, it's one thing to look at a photograph and read text. That's, that's one way. And that's the classic way that I've always looked at our criticism, but I was thinking this, this could be something that could be fun. You're actually out walking around, mm -hmm. you're talking about things. And sometimes I see people in the gallery and we'll talk about things but uh, you can see things, you can move in, you can do close-ups, you can move back, you can see who's there, you can sort of feel like you're, you're in a relationship with the, the, the cultural world of, of New York. Mm. And I always thought that that would be a, an important way of getting people to experience art. So you really like the process. It's very immediate, isn't it? I, I do like the process. It's very immediate. Uh, as a matter of fact, before I came over here today, I was editing a, a video on... A Richard Prince show that opened maybe mm, last I saw that. Friday. I'm, I'm going to be probably posting that when I get home tomorrow or the next day. I'll be doing Andy Warhol. I was at the Andy Warhol oh, yeah. show yesterday morning. Oh. So, I, I and if I didn't have other things backed up, I would probably be able to turn this stuff around in like two or three hours, which is very immediate. Well, that's what I want to ask you. How do you do both of those things? So you're you're prolific painter and a prolific. Or would it, is this like a workaholic thing or like how do you do it all? Well, you just do it. You just, you, <laughs> you have just, it. I, I, I decided that the video things are as important as the painting things. Okay. I enjoy it. Uh, I also uh -huh. feel a certain amount of responsibility to my viewers. I've got something like 25,000 subscribers on between the two channels and I get letters from people and well, just last, my last video, I've got people from South Africa, Oregon, uh, rural England and things sending me little notes and I feel like, you know, this is one way that I can sort of get the art out to them because they're hungry. They want to know what's going on mm. in New York. And a lot mm -hmm. of people wouldn't pay attention to them. And I, 
I feel like they need their little fix. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of teachers that use your videos. Yes, I've gotten a lot of notes from a lot of teachers all yeah, over the world. Yeah, so it's a really it's a really great contribution. I mean, in real time, you know, it's Thank not you. like, you know, it's not like you have to wait for having a show or something. So do and they both your artwork, your visual, your painting, and your videos inform each other. I'm guessing. Yes, they do. They do. So, um, did Kate ever wind up going back to art or? Well, occasionally she kind of, at, at some point she said, somebody's got to be the grown up in this relationship. And, uh, she got a very good job. She actually was, she was working at Columbia, uh, for the Dean there. Wow. For a while, and then she's working now at a, a wonderful foundation and, uh, you know, we enjoy the health care and all these other things. Oh, so, that's but, great. you know, it's like she tries to get out, but we keep pulling her yeah, back. Yeah, I know. In. How come? How come? Yeah, she she's because she, you're you know, you're you're on the scene um, as well. I mean, you know, as whatever, but um, not at everything. But you're around. You're a presence. And uh, is that does she not like to ride bikes or where is she? Where is no, that she, woman? She, I want to get a, to know her. <laughs> she sounds she's amazing. A, she's a gym rat. So and she's got a lot. Really? Of, yeah, she's got a lot of responsibilities at her job. So that keeps her tied up there quite a bit. But she's in great shape. She is in great shape. And she's out there working out and doing all kinds of things at the gym. And she's got a very uh, robust uh, group of people that she works with the community there. And so she spends a lot of time on, on doing that. And we, you know, we try to spend time together on the weekends. And and, you, and she doesn't really need to go there because she's got you with all doing all, doing all that for her. Occasionally, we're going to go see the Warhol show together and do some other things. She still enjoys art and she makes a little, you know, things here and there. And she, you know, it's she has nice to watch that, it. It's nice that you guys share that though, right? You share art. I'm a very, very lucky man. Um, That's a big she, deal. <laughs> she's She's made a lot of incredible sacrifices mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. still making sacrifices on a daily basis well you know i mean uh you've got to uh you got you got she's got a great husband who really appreciates her we don't hear that we don't hear that enough that's what women complain about they don't feel appreciated so i'm sure she she, she does and I, I also want you folks to know that um the times i mean i've known lauren uh, you know, since the nineties, I think I probably could have known him since Utrecht days, but I, he has always spoken so lovingly of his wife. And it's something that, uh, I have noted about him that he really appreciates his wife. And I want you guys to know that because, you know, Phil, get with it, get with the program. Now, Phil, Phil's really good too. Phil's good. Uh, good, but, Phil. <laughs> But um, one more question, and we're going right. to stick around. Stick around. So uh, listen, to, stay stay tuned. We've got a great afternoon of programming. Uh, ben, it's Ben Talks, and it's uh, Lost and Rewound. So much great stuff to come. If, if uh, somebody, a collector from the 80s, would they recognize your work today, vice versa? They could. They could. I, you know... Once you kind of have a certain kind of feel for color and uh, shape and form and things like that, I think it stays with you. Yeah. I think it stays with you. Cool. All right. But the old stuff's abstract.